2: lovely Tessa Dunlop who is an author and historian and expert on the women that we're going to be talking about today. So we're at the Romanian Cultural Institute which is is number one Belgrave Square and it is amazing. You come into this, you come in through the doors and it doesn't look like it's up to much and then suddenly it is this sort of I suppose like baroque, um, extravagant, beautiful set of rooms. It's absolutely stunning, so I would definitely recommend anybody who's listening to come and check it out. So we're going to talk about Marie of Romania. So she was a hugely popular queen and ambassador for Romania. And so, Tessa, how did she become Queen of Romania?
3: Right, well, interesting that we're sitting here in this sumptuous sort of de siècle environment. You're quite right, the chandeliers are twinkling, competing with the sun outside. She, in fact, was... Arguably Queen Victoria's most beautiful, ambitious granddaughter. Now, of course, Queen Victoria had a lot of granddaughters. But she was the daughter of the Duke of Edinburgh. She was born in Eastwell in England. And she felt very English all of her life. She talked about English blood in her veins whenever it counted diplomatically, she did anyway. But she was also the granddaughter of Tsar Alex of Russia, Alex II. So she had these extraordinary... Um, dynastic connections, one to the imperial British royal family and ditto on the other side of Europe in Russia. And the result was her mother, who wasn't particularly keen on England, uh, decided it was absolutely fine to marry off this peachy girl of 17 to a small barbarian state uh, in Eastern Europe, which of course was Romania, very much a sort of a fledgling nation. It had only been united in 1859 and wasn't recognized as a kingdom until 1881, Romania, the unification of the two principalities of Moldova and Wallachia. And poor old Marie, or poor young Marie, I mean you know this girl, small girl who apparently had sort of flirtations, put it like that, with our king George V at the time, of course, he was a naval man, he was a young lad, but it said, and that there's sort of letters and coquettish references that infer he may have had a little crush on her anyway he didn 't move fast enough, and off she went and was married off to this German crown prince of Romania, Ferdinand, who was a Hohenzollern, you know German stodgy, unprepossessing, very unattractive prince who was in love with someone else. There's several Diana, Princess Diana connections and one of those is she married a man who wasn't ever terribly into her and she had I mean she was notorious for the affairs that she had uh, especially in the earlier part of her marriage. So she married Ferdinand, she did what was was uh, demanded of her in the, the first half of her Stint in Romania, because of course she was a princess for, for a long time, and that was have six children, two, at least two of whom were Ferdinand's the first two, Carol, who was the most appalling king, and her older daughter Elizabeth. She didn't ascend to the throne until 1914, when her timing, and so often we see with great historical or indeed contemporary political figures, it's all about timing. You know, Macron is just one example of, you know, the modern example of timing is everything. And Queen Marie arrives on the Romanian throne in October 1914. Why is that significant? Because up until that point, the king of Romania, and for various reasons a lot of Balkan states, imported their monarchs. So Romania had imported a German monarch, Carol, hence the reason why the prince was his nephew, Ferdinand. He didn't, his, he didn't have any extant children. So Carol I was this German king who had committed Romania to a secret alliance with the central powers, the Triple Alliance, uh, really against the will of many of his Romanian subjects and politicians. So um, you get this curious situation uh, whereby... Romania desperately covets Transylvania, which is part of the austro hungarian Empire, because the majority of people living in Transylvania are Romanian. It wants this large area of land on the west. But it's never going to get that, because, of course, Austro-Hungary is in bed with Germany as part of the Triple Alliance. But Carol is a German king, so he's going to sit with his Germans. So at the beginning of the war, it's crunch time. Which way is Romania going to go? Right? Is it going to go with the Entente? which might conceivably give it a chance of getting hold of Transylvania, although in 1914 that's a dream, or is it going to um, stick with its German commitment? And it's, it's a real dilemma for King Carol, who's a duteous man of his word, you know, a real kind of German. And, uh, and um, he's heartbroken when it's voted in the Crown Council that Romania will remain neutral for the time being. By then, of course, he's ruled for nearly 40 years and he dies in the October, probably partly due to the heartbreak and strain of what's happening in the war, which didn't begin particularly well for the Central Powers. And then, of course, you have Marie ascend the throne. And why is that timing so relevant? Well, we know that Marie is half English, half Russian, uh, considers herself you know, an English princess. Romania is her adopted land. She's passionate about Romania joining the side of the Entente. Our side becoming one of our allies. Her husband is German, we know this plodish German Ferdinand. But unlike Carol, he doesn't have the power over foreign policy. That's really with his premier, Bratianu. And he's also an unprepossessing man minus charisma and therefore much more easily manipulated by this very powerful queen. And the, the way in which she conducts herself during the war is... I think, without precedent and certainly a precursor of modern times and more modern royals.
2: OK, so she was in quite a complex position during yeah. the war. Do you think that she successfully na- navigated it, or do you think that she came up against some quite difficult she, Well, opposition? interesting. So initially,
3: she has a nightmare because she wants to just... She's one of those very impetuous women. She keeps a diary throughout the entire war. Um, so you know exactly what she's thinking. She can never hold anything back. She's frightfully pleased with herself, entitled, you know, English. think thinks she's rather spiffing. And suddenly, Romania, which is a diplomatic backwater, no one really gives a stuff, is centre stage because both sides are desperate for these bellwether states like Bulgaria, Greece, Romania, to jump. They're all sitting neutral, partly because there's gridlock. We know that in the muddy fields. Um, on the continent, there's gridlock. And if one of the countries jumps and says, we're going with you, it's great for morale. It means that the bellwether state has decided you're going to win in the end. So there's a huge amount of money and interest being plugged into capital cities like Bucharest. And that's exciting. So if they found been... themselves in a really powerful position. Well, they, yes, but also a, quite a powerful position. I mean, they were little, but they were being heavily bribed and, you know, cajoled. A lot of pressure was being put on them. But for Marie... She desperately wants to, to go with the Entente and say how she really feels. But she refers to that period of neutrality, which for Romania went on until 1916. So for two years, they're sitting between a rock and a hard place. She said it's like treading on eggshells. You know, she's so frustrated. But apparently she did it very well. And, and what's very interesting, if you look in the archives, both in Windsor and in Bucharest is that her government used her to make sure they had a very distinct voice, both in London and, of course, in Russia, St. Petersburg. She, dear Nicky, you know, dear cousin Nicky, and to King George, oh, George, I know maps aren't your thing, but if you could just have a little look at a map, you know, that sort of tone. This is George V, our king, uh, trying to lay out, because Romania aren't going to go to war unless they're promised Transylvania, and they'd also like to keep... The slice of Bulgaria they've acquired. They want Bukovina further north. They end up also getting Bessarabia because, of course, Russia has its you know own revolution and drops out of the war. So the bottom line is they, they're only going to go to war if they get all these territorial goodies to bring their nation of people together, all the Romanian-speaking people. So she's the one that's told by all her sort of perfidious Romanian politicians, you know, give us a voice in London. And she does it very effectively. It's interesting if you look at the Foreign Office archives... We are very disdainful of East Europeans. And Romania had a shady reputation for extreme anti-Semitism. They never enfranchised their large Jewish um, minority, although they they were told they had to by the Treaty of Berlin, and they totally ignored it. They uh, also treated their peasants. These weren't peasant freeholders. They were peasant serfs, very much in the sort of Russian model. So there was a lot about Romania you could condemn, But we found in war we needed to buoy them up because we wanted them as allies. And Marie, of course, as the emerging face of Romania, was English, palatable, believable and trustworthy. The other thing was we didn't trust them. Oh, these orientalists, bartering and, you know, balkanists. And we were just rude and didn't trust them and thought they were dishonest. So she had a very key role as a diplomat for her nation. And it's very unusual for a woman that. And was clearly guided by by her, um, not just her premier... Uh, John Bratianu, her Prime Minister, but by her lover, uh, Barbu Sterbi. Uh, Barbu Sterbi was a Romanian prince. She had, I think, at least two children by him. Certainly her younger son, who perished in the war um, of typhoid fever. He was he was Barbu's child. But Barbu was a sort of incredible back-channeler, very effective courtier, and the brother-in-law of the Prime Minister. So Marie's right in there. Okay, and we... We know from the letters that she was their their voice, if you like, in Russia and London. Then, of course, finally, they decide they've got to jump. We put huge pressure on them, Britain and France. And in in many ways, quite unfairly, because we're we're not going to deliver a sort of spearhead attack from Salonika that we promise. We can't get the munitions they need through Russia. It's simply not possible. And uh, and Romania, interestingly, was a massive exporter of oil and grain. And we know that the central powers were... Perilously close to starvation by the end of the war. So they see that Romania declares war and they make it their priority to do a land grab. And Romania joins the war in August, and by December, Bucharest has been occupied by the Germans and in a sort of multinational army of Bulgarians and Turks. Now, what happens is when Romania declares war in August 1916, we in the West, England and France, hail it as this is it we're going to win, you know, Romania called it right in the Second Balkan War, they've called it right again, hurrah, 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 they're a Latin nation, which is what Romania always really pushed themselves as, not Slavic, but, but Latin. And this is tremendous news. Now, if within three months, your prediction that this is the beginning of the end of the war has actually ended up in a sort of farce, a retreat, an ignominious retreat, where Romania, High hygiene's government and royalty, uh, tucked away in Moldova, sort of cowering and starving in the middle of winter, how do you sell that in a war that's become a massive propaganda battle? And so there was a sort of vacuum. Arguably, Romania would have then fallen out of the news and sort of. Par- but but what happens is Queen Marie becomes this extraordinary face of her nation. Again, the timing was superb. Edith Cavell, famously, was mur- the nurse was famously murdered by the Germans, and huge hoo-ha was made about that. This barbaric n- nation of Huns, look what they're doing, you know, to galvanize our uh, to steal us against our enemy. Marie never is seen, from August 1916 onwards, hardly ever is seen without her nurses' whites on. So she is at the vanguard of this feminine pushback in Romania. And because she's a queen, she massively catches headlines. We are served with a very stodgy queen. We've got George, steady George, married to Mary with a sort of pudgy daughter and the dowager Alexandra. They're not headline material. America, of course, who we desperately want to join us in the war in 1917, they do, but it's before the cult of First Lady. And Wilson's wife, hardly. So we're desperate for someone a bit glamorous, a bit good looking. And Marie fits the bill she loves, she's really the sort of, again, there's a similarity there with Diana, where the the media love her. They come, cinematographers, journalists, Century Magazine, the Daily Mail, the Times, everyone flocks to Marie, because she's great. My, My poor peasant soldiers. And of course, Typhus rips through the army in the East. And Marie is like, no, girls, put on your whites and get out there and look after these guys. So she... And and she leads the push. Now, a lot of people have criticised the fact all the attention was on her, not the other women who were making an effort. But to an extent, you need to concentrate your propaganda. You need to distill it. And here was this wonderful concoction of passionate about Romania, but also a hybrid, an English-Russian hybrid royal And she writes books about her country. Hodder and Stoughton bring out this book that's then published in The Times about, oh, my poor innocent people, look at their darling churches and little brown gypsy children, and oh, they're so innocent. And there was a sort of purity about the stories she was selling about her nation, which reversed this idea of perfidious Balkans who just fight among themselves. So she did an incredible favour, really, to, to Romania in some respects, And then, finally, Romania capitulate. What happens is that allies are Russia. We know Russia falls out of the war, has a revolution. It couldn't be worse. It just goes from bad to worse. And she's heartbroken, of course, by this, because she gets on very well with all the Russian elite. And there is a fear that there'll be contagion. If they've knocked off the Tsar, they're going to knock off the Romanian monarchy. But what's very interesting about Romania is there's this clear love and affection for Marie. She's present at all the march past the soldiers, you know, are, are devoted to her, and the newsreels in the British Film Institute archive are amazing. Of her going and giving her soldiers sweeties and trinkets, they're all really stylised. But it's extraordinary to think that those newsreels were being played out in Britain. You know, from coming from the Eastern Front, and typhus is a very it's very infectious. A lot of the medicals. So she was putting herself at risk. Yeah, massively. Yeah. Yeah, but that was saint yeah. who was a rather high-profile French diplomat out there at the time. All the French loved her. She spoke French. He couldn't get over the fact that she insisted on not wearing rubber gloves when she tended the, tri- the dying troops, the infected troops. She said, well, I can't let them kiss Indian rubber. You know, and again, there's that parallel with Diana. And yet this is 60, 70 years before that period. You know, when Lady Diana famously insisted on touching the AIDS victims. So she, she was she was pretty mind-blowing. And in 1918, the New York Times said she was one of the most vivid personalities of the war. America couldn't get enough of her. Again, her books were published over there, and Century magazine wrote an article describing her as the soldier queen. She had a nominal role as head of a regiment, uh, which she, of course, played up. I mean, she was a massive show-off. You know, you need to be an exhibitionist, like Churchill, to command the moment so brilliantly. But what happens is Russia falls out of the war, so Romania is effectively encircled, and they're forced to capitulate to the Germans in March 1918. Britain and France are saying, no, stay in the war, fight. And Marie is, I want to fight to my last man. Have I not English blood in my veins? And all these letters going to King George saying, look, George, I'm doing all I can, you know. And she very much champions the Romanian king, her husband, German-Iranian king, and the elite, not to sign the peace, the Bucharest peace with Germany. And it's, it's very important that later at the peace conference, that she can say, look, I never signed, My, you know, the king never signed that peace treaty with Germany. And Bratianu, the prime minister, who briefly retreats, allows Margamillion to take over, you know, he comes back and, you know, they sort of hands off, hey, we didn't surrender. You know, and she, she helps that narrative. Look, we had no option. Because arguably, Romania came into the war too late and surrendered too soon. You know, if you actually broke down their, their, their war narrative. Yeah, they did briefly rally in 1917. And that took pressure off the Western Front. They had this kind of push against the Germans. In August of 1917, which, given that the Russians were by this stage revolting and, and not really in the game, was impressive. But I think, for me, what stood out from looking, spending a lot of time with Queen Marie, because I spent hours with her in the archive. Funnily enough, at the beginning of the war, I know that her young, her youngest son is going to die, and I'm reading her her diaries. And I know he's going to die and she doesn't know he's got typhoid fever. And, the, and what's happening is the Germans are getting ever nearer. Every day they're getting nearer and nearer Bucharest. And you also know that Bucharest is going to capitulate, you know, it's going to be occupied. And you know the son's going to die and she doesn't know. And you're reading this diary and you're just like one step ahead of her. And I just found myself crying. So I, I found myself nearly on the documents, you know, on the actual diary. I had to be really careful. There's something so human about her, you know, and... She, when Romania then ends up at the peace conference in 1919, I mean, it's the man's world. You know, it's where all the the big four come, they gather.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
4: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated
1: to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
2: How did she yeah exactly how did she manage to glean respect from some of you know the leading politicians on the world platform at that peace conference well that that is really interesting
3: first of all, her prime minister Bratiani, was very unpopular with the leading politicians. The reason we're sitting here in this institute is because we're going to have a big celebration in November december november the twenty first I'll be speaking about Marie do come because. At the end of the war, December 1918, although they'd capitulated to the Germans, they rejoined the war in November, ride triumphantly into Bucharest, returning to Bucharest. Marie at the front there, not as her husband's queen, but as a queen in her own right, because she's got such standing by this stage. And Romania, on paper, it hasn't been ratified internationally, but actually has doubled in size almost. Transylvania, the Banat, not all of the Banat, because they argue with that with Serbia. Uh, Bukovina. It's going to get Bessarabia off Russia now as well, because Russia's fallen out of the war. So they are going to do phenomenally well. They end up the fifth biggest country in Europe. The irony is, Marie goes on and on about how small, vulnerable country, and it's a thumping great country by the time the war's come to an end. And I think a lot of politicians in the West, although we know, you know the breakdown of the Austro-Hungarian Empire means we're going you know, to go with this small nations narrative, and that these small nations are going to be our you know our protection, if you like, what a joke against Bolshevism and and, and German ambition. Actually, we're, we're pretty suspicious of uh, the chauvinistic intentions of countries like Romania. And Bratianu was unapologetic in his grasping way. You know, he just wanted no compromise. You know, if you if you're looking at the Banat, well, Serbia was an ally, Romania was an ally. Come on, guys, carve it up. You know, and he's like, no. You know, and he won't also, he holds out, he doesn't want to enfranchise the Jews. That's a big deal for Brattiano. He's an anti-Semite. You know, it's a, it's a really exclusive nationalism. And he knows he's unpopular with them. And he has a keen sense of what he wants to get out of the Paris Peace Conference. So he invites Marie to arrive in Paris in March 1919. And again, if you look at the archive, the Royal Archive in Bucharest... Because she's been so plastered on the papers in France, America and England and Britain during the war, of course, everyone flocks into... As soon as she arrives in uh, the Parisian train station on her royal train, people are flocking to interview her. She's at the Ritz. She gets access to everyone. Clemenceau, uh, she has a sort of tete-a-tete-with, some joke about him being a tiger, I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, Lloyd George, she jokes, and and Balfour, our foreign secretary, she has dinner with them both, and she's asking them tactics about how she should handle President Wilson. And Balfour says, well, if you were going to talk to Lloyd George, you would tell him about buying your pink dress, your pink chemise first, but maybe with stodgy old President Wilson, don't go down that line first. In fact, the only one she doesn't really have success with is is the American president. He's not into Queens. He's a Democrat. And he's certainly not into Romania because of the, the big Jewish pressure group in America, many of whom were, came from Romania. Um, and he actually says to her, what about the Jews? You know." And he can't bear Bratianu. But what she does is, and she's big... For instance, it's so funny when you think how anti-Romania the Daily Mail is today. She's such a big hit in papers like the Daily Mail. She comes over to stay with her first cousin, George, the 5th, and her son goes to Eton and she goes to visit him there and just has a rip-roaring time, really, and does spend a lot of money on dresses. She said, well, if it helps my country, I'll buy a few more dresses. (laughs) She's frightfully pleased with herself. But I found, because there is this sort of familiarity about her because of her background, and because she puts it out there and almost makes her fun, you know, she's a sort of verging on being a caricature of herself at times and knows that, you you can't help but sympathise with her, and of course George thinks it's all rather vulgar. This playing with the press and doesn't let the Romanian legation have their their press interviews in Buckingham Palace, and he thinks the papers are filthy rags. But actually, who was with the Zeitgeist? Who who read the direction that the that royalty were going to have to go in? Marie did, and bearing in mind that at the end of the First World War, just how many monarchs five or so had. L- had lost their position. You know, the Tsar's dead. The Kaisers abdicated. All those German princes gone. Old George had to change his name in 1917. And there's Marie, emboldened, popular. And uh, there's talk of a tour to America. And sure enough, in 1926, she goes on tour in America. She's a a dude. Uh, Things held her back, like her own nation's politics held her back a bit. And the other thing that I love about her and that I sort of feel I share with her is I have this passionate love for Romania. I think it's a misunderstood country. And she, she just adored Romania. She adored it. And she got so frustrated with her politicians who were sort of were corrupt and self-serving and it was an oligarch. And arguably it's not that much better today in some respects. You know, it's not, it's not you know, maybe leading from the front in the EU. But I think you know, it's just a country that I think inspires incredible sympathy. And she understood that. And she, yeah, she was great.
2: So how do you think that she helped in forming the country, as it is today? No sort of popular perception of it? Well,
3: that's an interesting question. She's once again hugely popular in Romania, Marie, because she was buried, her legacy was very much buried by the communists. I think she has had this resurgence. I don't think Prince Charles would be nearly as heavily invested in Transylvania and Romania generally and he of course was one of the few who spoke out against Ceausescu and his destruction of the villages in the late 1980s Prince Charles quite bravely and I wonder if that would have been the case had he not been a direct descendant of Marie I mean if you think she was first cousins with George V that makes I think her first cousin three times removed with Charles and I think there is this in it's interesting because at the moment in Britain our second largest diaspora is Romanian I love it because I hear Romanian on every street. Having had this language that I could never really use, suddenly I can use it all the time. But I think there's a question people think, sort of why, why are there so many Romanians here? And actually, Britain, insular Britain, we were always into our empire. We were never particularly engaged in Eastern Europe. We've been poor Europeans for much of our history, um, including today. And I think that it's really pleasing there is this very viable, real Anglo-Romanian connection. Uh, that goes back to the end of the first world war and she was an incredibly loyal ally from the beginning of the war she wanted to fight with Britain there was no question you know and for her yeah she knew that Romania wanted to acquire Transylvania which it did but it was also because she was a Brit and she felt that really keenly and in her diary whenever there's money coming in after Romania's rolled over by the Germans you know quite a lot of money comes across from Britain fundraising and, and and so forth in her name, sending it directly to her because people trust her. They think she's a British royal, and she's always so touched, you know, in Edinburgh because she's the daughter of the Duke of Edinburgh, a princess, therefore of the city, and and she's just as thrilled every time. And I think I know I'm an old romantic like that, and I'm not particularly a royalist, but I think she she was a strong lady. She was a cool woman. She she played the game and she played it really well. And she came out at the end of the First World War, like I say, when monarchs were. Discredited and in some cases dead, she came out massively empowered. Now, that wasn't going to last, but we know the 30s, the politics of the 20s and 30s were pretty invidious and hardcore, especially in those parts of Europe. But, in fact, she had a hell of a time, partly because of the behaviour of her son. But in that moment, cometh, you know, cometh the hour, cometh the woman. She was the right person at the right time. And I, I just love, I love talking about her because I think she's an inspiration. How can people find out more about her? www.icr-london.co.uk That's www.icr-london.co.uk It's the Romanian Cultural Institute. In fact, her son bought this extraordinary building, Carol II, in 1937. He, He had made many mistakes, but he did acquire huge mistakes. Incredible real estate in Paris, London and New York. Which is why we're sitting here today. So again, there's a direct connection. And it is amazing? amazing.
2: And you have to come to learn more about Queen Marie and also just to see the beautiful building.
3: Yeah, yeah. and apparently there's going to be remaining wine and music. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> Marie would approve she loved a party.
2: Tessa, where can people follow you on social
3: media? I'm at Tessa Dunlop on Twitter. In fact, we should tweet about this. I should put up a photograph. There's so many photographs of her. And I'm hoping BBC Breakfast are going to run a bit of footage of her tending the the troops on the front line for the armistice program so fingers crossed so look out for her i'm doing what i can and i'm just finishing my phd and then and then i'm gonna have to write a book because phds don't really let you indulge in affairs and such like you know so there's lots of marie that needs to be unpicked in more salacious detail
2: we'll we'll look forward to it and we'll have to have you back to talk about it thank you helen (laughs)